Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and beaches vacation.com. So our forecast is for a 30-year mortgage rate to be closer to five and a half by the end of this year and drop it a little lower next year. So we started this week out in New York City at NBA Secondary, and I had a I had an awesome 24 hours at NBA Secondary, really productive, a lot of meetings, got to attend a few sessions and absorb some of the content. But I will confess that in the cab on the way back to the airport, I slacked Sarah Wheeler, our editor-in-chief, and said, Sarah, let me um, steal your brain for a second and get your key three takeaways from NBA Secondary so I can make an Instagram reel and share it with uh, some of the, the housing Clayton followers. Um, so instead of stealing Sarah's thoughts again, I thought I'd invite her onto the housing news podcast to share some of her perspectives from three or four days up in New York, focused on NBA secondary. Sarah Wheeler, editor-in-chief of Housing Wire. Welcome to Housing News. Thanks for having me, Clayton. It's so fun to be a guest on someone's podcast. I'm usually the one asking the questions. So we'll see if we have like this battle where I come back at you with some questions. Yeah, Sarah. So you're hosting Housing Wire Daily five days a week. Um, that's 110 episodes a year. Maybe there's a vacation day in there too. But uh, that's a lot of podcast hosting. So welcome to being a guest. Thank you. It's really fun. Yes. And as you and I know, we, you have to be agile and nimble. I think this morning um, I was in a bathroom. Um, that's where I had to record uh, because there was so much noise in the in the hotel room. So I'm in a better hotel room now. <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll stop. We won't dig into why you're recording in a bathroom. I'm going to leave it alone, Sarah. Okay. But Sarah, so right now we're going to have a, a short conversation about your key takeaways from MBA Secondary. And then we're going to transition into an exclusive inter- interview between you and Mike Fratt and Tony, the chief economist at the Mortgage Bankers Association. But let me pick your brain again and talk about some of your key takeaways. So the first thing that you highlighted for me was that attendees seemed optimistic given the current market. But when you talk a little bit, you get a little more behind the scenes look of what's actually going on. Tell me about some of the conversations that you had and, and how you were moving away from those those lender secondary market conversations into what's really happening in the market. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's what I always try to do. At you know, of course, we have a lot of uh, planned interviews, and we sit in on the sessions. But one of my favorite things to do is just um, have lunch with people, uh, introduce myself to random people. If you've been at a conference, I bet I have come up to you and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm with Housing Wire," and I just, I just want to talk to as many people as possible, and just trying to, you know, get get some uh, feeling for what's happening in their own business. And so, what I would say is like, and and you and I both know the people who are at the conferences are the people who are already doing pretty well, right? So. They're not the ones who didn't send anyone to a conference or, you know, s- scaled down or whatever. So already, you know, there is sort of a bias there to the people being at conferences, having a good, uh, a better year maybe than some. But I, I would just say overall, the conference seemed pretty optimistic, not just from the stage. And, and you know, I feel like they really took on some, you know, it's not that they were being Pollyannish. I mean, we talked about they talked about some hard things, but, you know, just around the uh, table, it's not like people are like gloom and doom. But when you do talk to them for a minute, it's like, then you, when, when you dig down, well, what are you doing this? What are you doing that? They're like, oh yeah. Okay. Well that's, that's, you know, that's, 
pretty much shut down now or we're, we're looking at this or we're waiting for this to come back or um, you know, I talked to some uh, friends of mine in the industry, right, and found out that some other friends had been uh, laid off, that they were maybe some uh, worried about uh, where they worked, things like that. Um, and, and just in general, like there's there's the very real understanding that the probably the biggest thing is that we don't know what, where the end is in sight. And that's really what I tried to get to with Mike yesterday. Um, and no economist can really tell us, right? Um, he did a great job. Uh, they've, they've redone their forecast to really... Um, reflect all the market conditions going on right now. But like, I think what you get the feeling of is like, we don't know what the end point is. And so how do you plan? And how do you, how do you know if you're going to be able to make it? And how do you, how do you grow in this environment? And there are people who are growing, right? But I, I think that that's what I saw is like, people wish they, I think earlier we thought we kind of had a plan. And then some of the other, you know, the debt ceiling, um, you know, crisis, the banking crisis has thrown some, some wrenches in there where it's like, and the Fed talking quite a bit about um, not being done with rate hikes. Even today they said that, which is crazy. We I just talked to Mike Fred and Tony yesterday and he was talking about, well, you know, they're probably done hiking. Now we don't know if they're going to lower or whatever. And then today they come back and say stuff. So I think what the sense I got from everyone was if they just knew what the end point was. Yeah, it's only appropriate. This conference was in New York near Times Square, right around the corner from the theater district because so much of what is happening right now related to the debt ceiling and maybe even in the Federal Reserve is very well-orchestrated theater. <laughs> At least that's my take. So Sarah, one of the other topics that you brought to my attention that, that I heard talked about in several of the sessions that I was able to briefly attend um, is that jumbo loans have been the one line that kept depository banks active in the mortgage ecosystem. But for banks, these are all but dead right now. And so is this create an opportunity for, for IMBs to fill that demand? How will wholesale lenders and broker markets play in the in the jumbo landscape? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think this is one of the more interesting um, things coming out of the, the uh, banking crisis, right? Is that a lot of those regional banks might be the ones that you would go to, you know, you're, you have your money there and they, in this environment, could offer you a better rate than, you know, your typical loan officer or mortgage broker. They can, you know, they, they aren't looking to make money on every single loan or even, you know, maybe they can lose more on every loan, let's say that. Um, and so Jumbo was really, you know, kind of had been ceded to those regional banks in the last couple of months. Um, in a place like California, what does that look like? I mean, almost all the loans are Jumbo loans, right? I mean, a, a good number of them are. And so you just think, um, if the banks are, are really not going to be the ones um, doing that, then is there is there demand at a higher rate for the jumbo loans? And that's what we don't know yet. That's what we're going to have to figure out. Yeah, one of the, you know one of the the secrets of the depository banking ecosystem and mortgage is that a big component of the cost of producing a loan is customer acquisition. And when you have a borrower or you have a depository client who you have checking savings, maybe brokerage, uh, maybe an auto loan and a credit card, and you can cross sell the mortgage, that customer acquisition cost isn't there. Um, and uh, that's, a, that's a notable advantage. But if they're not going to play in that space, IMBs have an opportunity to step up, which I think as it relates to these expensive coastal markets means tighter and tighter relationships with the real estate agents who are the first point of contact with these seven figure home buyers, which, you know, in the, in the good old days, million dollar plus houses were, were rare. And today's market, after a couple of years of crazy home price appreciation, um, you know, it's, it's the mean in some zip codes. 
No, that's a great point. And, um, you know, something that really struck me uh, from the stage and that I asked Mike about was the production of uh, mortgage employees. So, you know, we talked about volume and obviously volumes roll off, but production is so, so low. I mean, it, he says at all time low, one one loan per per employee per month, like um, you're just down. So it's tough because if you think about a manufacturing loan as a process, you, you pull some of those, you know, different parts out. How does it still get done? And um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of when I think about IMB stepping up to do this, um, I, I hope it works for them. Right. I, what we don't know is, do you have those jumbo buyers who are like, I'm still going to, you know, I was I was willing to do it when the bank could give me a little bit uh, off of this rate. Are they are they going to do it now, especially since we're back up towards seven? All right. So we're painting a picture for our audience here of what it was like at NBA secondary. We have this group of capital markets professionals and origination execs who are, you know, optimistic. Like there was a little buzz. There is a little energy. We know things aren't easy. We know there's challenges in the market. There's some optimism toward the other side, despite all the uncertainty that exists. Um, there's some uncertainty around jumbo. We don't know exactly who's going to dominate that market. Now depositories are, are less active. And when we're not talking about jumbo, the other phrase that was on the lips of all the attendees was, was credit tightening. So Sarah, give us some context into the credit tightening conversations that you heard on stage and behind the scenes. Yeah, and this is really, um, I, I would say it's a secondary, it does affect residential, but where we're seeing it is in, um, you know, lending to, to business lending, small business lending, commercial lending, all of those things. But, but that changes the market for everybody. You know, it's maybe less um, apparent when you when you have when you think about the um, mortgage market because there is that you know we have a secondary market for that, but it has it has an effect. And one of the things also is it's a harbinger of of recession. So you typically see credit tightening. This is according to my friend and Tony. Um, you know, that's that's a good harbinger for what's coming next, and that is a recession. And, as, and of course, they have you know it's not like that's a a surprise to anybody. It's like, it's more a surprise of like, when are we actually going to see it? And, and what is it going to look like? Um, you know, housing has been in a recession since last year, but the overall economy, you wouldn't say it's still, it's in a recession yet because I mean, I think it's the labor markets keeping it up, but that credit tightening has, I think a chilling effect in the larger ecosystem of financing, even if it's not so much on, on just, you know, the primary market, primary mortgage market. So Sarah, as we come out of secondary, and you work closely with our event leader, Brenna Nath, on building our agendas and speaker lists for Gathering of Eagles and, and Housing Mar Annual. Are there any topics or speakers that you like, you jotted down in your notes, like, hey, I got to bring this to the stage at Housing Wire Annual in October? Any, anything market learnings that you want to bring to our audience and our, in our Housing Wire in-person experience coming up um, just around the corner in, in October? Yeah, I think, you know, um, we started planning the agenda uh, months ago, and I feel like every time I go to an event, I'm like, okay, what are they doing that we want to steal? What's really resonating? Maybe if there's something that's not, I feel like the economic part of that talk, and we'd already, um, you know, we've got Logan coming in on mortgage rates. We've got Mike Simonson coming in on inventory. Um, we're going to be talking uh, about MBS. We're going to be talking about some of those things, but our, I think the overarching theme is how does this information impact your business? So this is not going to be like, let's go and talk about things. It's it's all going to be like every session, every speaker, every topic is like, come and figure out how this is going to impact your business. When you, when you go home, this is not just for fun because we're not in that environment. Like people, I mean, we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun, but the topics are very geared toward being very practical, actionable. 
I like that feedback. I, I, I don't know how we can actually put this in action, but I want to ban the word challenging market or challenge like from our stage. I think that's like the biggest like event speaker trap of like talking about like the bad and the, the challenges and, and not talking about how do you turn current market dynamics into market share and opportunity. And I know we're like, that is like, that is our gathering of Eagle theme, gathering of Eagles theme, forging opportunity. And we have to figure out how we bring that in a really strong way at housing wire annual. Cause nobody wants to hear, nobody wants to talk about how hard this market is. I don't need to hear, or see any more year over year stats about how origination volume compares <laughs> to last year. I need to know how we help build our business faster and how we help our audience build their businesses faster in these market dynamics. So Sarah, that's the charge. Bring that to the stage. That is the charge. And I will tell you that one of the people that I talked to at secondary, um, she's really focused on the innovators, the entrepreneurs who are um, maybe a little bit around the edges um, of of the conference and kind of seeing um, the opportunity they can take. And we had a really interesting off the record conversation about some of the things that they're doing and I'm excited to see that, you know, in every market, there are people who are going to capitalize and come out of it stronger. We know that. And we know many of the people in the um, in our industry right now have already done this in the past. They started in 2008 or they went through 2008 and figured it out. And so we know that they are already doing some of those things. So I agree with you. We're going to make it a um, something that people can take home and it's positive. And also just like, let's let's find solutions. Let's not just talk about all the problems. Exactly. So Sarah, in a second, we're going to transition our conversation over to air an exclusive inter- interview between you and Mike Frattantoni, the chief economist at the Mortgage Bankers Association. You talk about the conference a little bit more, but you also talk about forecasts and what to expect ahead. So I hope our audience finds a lot of value in that. This conversation initially aired on our housing wire daily podcast with sarah host and after listening to the conversation i had to bring it to our housing news audience which is a little bit a little bit different and um so if you already heard it just go ahead to apple and leave a review about how much you love housing news uh, but if you haven't heard it tune in and listen to every word but sarah before i let you you jump and thank you for doing this introduction with me i want to ask you so one of the cornerstones of nba secondary are some awesome parties at great venues in New York city. And, um, you know, I'm still relatively young, but I can't keep up with you and Logan Motoshami. The two of you were out there at every single party. I think I, I was watching a little bit in person and a little bit on social media and you guys were out there, um, rooftop bar to rooftop bar. So give me, give me a glimpse. Are there any parties that you want to give a shout out to that you thought were at exceptional venues or had exceptional food or exceptional people. Give us a little glimpse into that social life in New York. Oh my gosh. We did do so many rooftop parties. And I would just say that there's just something very magical about a rooftop party at um, sunset in New York city, right? Which is why there were, I think five parties at the same time. They were all uh, in that, you know, uh, period. And we're like, what? So we were just jumping from party to party. Um, the ice party at Inc. 48 was really amazing. I, I was traveling over there. And of course, we'd been to some that were closer to the venue. And we're like, why are we going so far over? Well, we got there. And the view was why we got, you know, so far over. Because you could see the water from, like, three sides. The city on the other side was amazing. Um, great food. Um, I will say, you know, you and I and other people we were with, you you get really good at getting, you know, how do you eat those little appetizers while you're talking to people, you know, without it being totally awkward. I haven't yet mastered that, but um, 
it was great. I think that was really great. I'll say one of my highlights was seeing you and Logan at the Planet Home Lending Party and those those little uh, miniature lobster rolls were, were something to write home about. The, the one party I did not get to attend, which I really wish I did, I have a little bit of FOMO on, is uh, Enact hosted an event at the NASDAQ Market Center. And that, that was one that I, I, I heard about and saw some pictures of. And I was like, damn, Enact, for me an invite next year. Okay, so say, same because we, you know what, that was, I think, the latest party. And actually, I just have to say my feet gave out, gave out for that. I am a, I am a veteran party goer at these events. And so I know, and I had planned ahead. And yet after all day of New York and then all those parties, I was like, okay, I can't do that last one. But dang it, it looked really good. I heard the same thing you did. All right, Sarah, thank you for your time, your expertise, sharing a little bit from the conversations that you had at Secondary in New York. We're going to transition over to your interview with Mike Fratt and Tony. Everybody enjoy. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Okay, so we're here at MBA Secondary um, in New York City. Been a great conference so far. And I really wanted to talk about some of the forecast things that you gave a presentation on. So let's dive right in and um, let's talk about inflation or disinflation. Yeah, so coming out of the pandemic, any number of supply chain constraints led to inflation really getting ahead of way where the Fed would want it to be. The longer we stayed there, it got baked into a lot of other pricing decisions, and we saw the headline inflation rate get to 9%. And that's just terrifying if you're a central banker. That is contrary to anything they're trying to do. They uh, increased short-term rates five percentage points over a short period of time in an effort to try to slow that down. It's been successful so far, but I would say not as successful as they would like. So depending on which measure you look at, we're at five, a little below five. It's a lot better than nine. But it's not the 2% where they like to be. So our expectation is they're going to keep plugging away to try to keep that inflation rate coming down. Do you, do you have a, a target in mind like, you know, or have they been clear about a target in mind that they're looking for, you know, they're going to do three more rates, this kind of thing, kind of the outline they gave us last year, or have they been less clear this year? Definitely less clear. And uh, we actually think they may be done increasing rates, but... What I'm speaking to is right now there's a lot of anticipation in the market that they're ready to cut rates because you know the uncertainty in the banking system, uh, the sense that the economy is slowing down. But I think what a lot of Federal Reserve officials have made pretty clear, they are in no hurry to cut rates with inflation as high as it is. So our forecast has them staying at the current level all the way through 23. So I wouldn't expect a first cut until the first quarter of 2024. So we know there are other market influences. It's not just what the Fed does. I know your original uh, forecast had you know rates going down quite a bit by the end of the year. What does that look like now? Yeah, for a 30-year mortgage rate, let's call it six and a half percent today. You know, we tend to be in this relatively narrow range between six, six and a half, depending upon what's happening that particular week. Our expectation is once the Fed really has sounded the all clear that they're at the top for this rate cycle, you could see uh, some of the rate volatility that has been pushing up mortgage rates subside a little bit. So our forecast is for a 30-year mortgage rate to be closer to five and a half by the end of this year and drop it a little lower next year. From your mouth to God's ears. Okay, can <laughs> we, we just be say humble, that? Yeah. Because that would be amazing. Um, let's talk about some of those other factors. You mentioned the banking crisis. How do you think that's factoring in? Yeah, well, it has been a very unsettling couple of months, as you know, that these seem to come out of the blue. Uh, three of the largest bank failures 
in the history of the United States. And a lot of it was directly, you can point to the shock from the Fed raising short-term rates so quickly to such an extent. And across the banking system, there's about $600 billion of unrealized losses in the securities books that banks hold. It's about a trillion dollars of unrealized losses on the loan book. And what we saw in those three banks' cases, that makes depositors nervous when there's this realization that there's that level of loss in the system. And you've seen sort of one bank to another really get under the microscope as investors saying sort of, are you solid? Can I have confidence that my deposits are going to be safe, particularly uninsured deposits, of course, right? So it really has changed the psychology of the market, I would think. And one thing that I pointed to in the presentation at the secondary conference was we were already seeing credit conditions tighten. Uh, So banks tightening credit criteria on consumer loans, commercial real estate, C&I loans, a little bit on residential mortgage, not not as much because there's a secondary market outlet. And anytime historically where you see banks tighten like that, that's really followed by a slowdown in the economy. So we were already predicting a, a modest recession. We think it's going to be a little worse than we would have thought before the bank issues. Yeah, that's just not any good news, right? Um, it does point to the strength of the IMBs, I think, you know, something that Bob Brooksmith said um, in his uh, session yesterday is, you know, these are, these are not uh, mortgage banks that have had these you know, situations that have need to be uh, bailed out that have seen failure. And, you know, he's pointing to the fact that, you know, those should be supported right now. Yeah. Looking at data from Humda, independent mortgage banks are about two thirds of origination. Looking at our data, they're more than half of servicing at this point. So that they're a very, very important part of the market. Obviously, all the banks are our members too. And we don't have favorites amongst our, our membership, but uh, all of them incredibly important. But to Bob's point, uh, this, I think, is just highlighting the essential role that independent mortgage banks play in the market. We have a Slack channel at HW that publishes all the new registered users for our HW events, like the Gathering of Eagles coming up in June and Housing Wire Annual coming up in October. I was just scrolling through the Gathering of Eagles feed on Slack, and wow, I am blown away with the quality of the attendees. Leaders from Keller Williams, Better Homes and Gardens, EXP, Compass, Hannah Holdings, Remax, and Home Services and incredible ecosystem partners like Zillow, Austin Board of Realtors, New Western Acquisitions, UWM and Bright MLS, just to name a few. If you aren't familiar with GOE, this is our real estate brokerage event for the most elite brokers, teams, MLS execs, and state and local association of realtors leaders. June 18th through 21st in Austin, Texas at the amazing Omni Barton Creek Resort. Visit the events tab on realtrends.com or housingwire.com to register. So one of the things about this economy that's so strange is that we have had this very strong um, labor market, right? The jobs part of the economy is going great, which is 
very, um, it, it throws a wrench into what the Fed is trying to do. At the same time, like, it's not like anybody wants to see a bunch of people yeah. unemployed. So tell us where, what you've seen on job growth and how that's factoring in. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, one thing I would encourage people to remember that the job market tends to be a lagging indicator, particularly the unemployment rate. And think about it in our own industry, right? That first the volume drops, then uh, decision makers, uh, you know, make make the move to reduce capacity, right? They they don't typically do it in advance, and that happens in every sector. But just looking at some of the numbers, right? We still have almost 10 million job openings, so a lot of business demand for workers. The unemployment rate at 3.4 percent in April. That's the lowest we've seen since 1969. We're averaging 280,000 uh, in terms of job gains per month thus far this year. So very, very strong. Now, some of the signs of a little bit of slowing, uh, initial claims for unemployment insurance are trending up. Uh, the rate of wage growth is slowing. It was 5.5% last year. It's a little less than 45 now. And so that's positive if you're a central banker because if wages are growing uh, at that 5.5% rate, the company really has to take a choice. Are, are they going to just sort of eat those costs and, and take lower profit, or are they going to push that wage cost forward in the form of higher prices to their customer? And we were seeing that wage price spiral happening. So the fact that the rate of wage growth is slowing, again, not as fast as the Fed would like, is a positive uh, in terms of the central bank review of we want a, an economy with maximum employment but stable prices. It's a tough balancing act, but that's what they're aiming for. It is such a tough balancing act. And, you know, it, it, uh, when we talk about rates are higher, obviously five points higher than, than at the low. Um, and that was, you know, um, say the high we saw in the fall, um, of 2022. That, what, what has been interesting is it has not brought down home prices like people thought. So tell us a little bit about your forecast for home prices and if you've adjusted that as we go. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember back in October, we put out this forecast saying, you know, we think the best way to characterize the national housing market the next two years is home prices essentially flat. And that's after a year where home prices at the national level went up almost 19%, right? So that is a huge difference. And also note that at 19% national growth, every market in the country was growing. When home prices are flat, you're seeing a lot of markets with some pretty significant declines. Right now, the San Francisco Bay Area is one that jumps out, but a lot of West Coast markets, some mountain state markets as well. But the rest of the country looks, looks pretty strong. So to your point, how is that happening when rates moved as fast as they did? And it gets to a challenge we've had going back to the great financial crisis of we're just not building enough housing in this country. If you look from the 70s until that first decade of the 2000s, each decade, we were building between 16 and 18 million housing units. In the, in the 20 teens, we built 11 million. At a time when the millennials are reaching the age where they go out and form their own households. Uh, and, you know, absolutely, the home building sector really suffered through the great financial crisis in the aftermath. But we're now we're in this hole of just sort of a structural undersupply. And, you know, our thought, again, last October was that's going to keep home prices from falling because, there's always going to be some demand, and that's going to be enough to soak up the supply that's there. And builders had pulled back, at least initially, too, so there wasn't a lot of new homes. They are now picking up the pace, which is a good thing. But I would say, you know, the next you know, five, seven years, we're going to be in this structural undersupply situation. So as the economy recovers, as the housing market recovers, 
maybe if rates come down a bit, we're going to be bumping up against that lack of supply more and more. But for now, it's a positive in the sense of it's keeping home prices from dropping. That's true. I mean, I do think uh, also, as you see, mortgage rates come down a little bit, moderating. Um, we would hope that that would help people sell, right? Be confident enough that they can list their house and not be, you know, priced out, um, whether by mortgage rates or the combination of that plus what ho- home prices are doing. Um, but I mean, that has to happen. And then there has to be some some length of time for people to really change their mindset, right? The consumers aren't like us. They don't watch this every single day, every single minute. We know when things turn, they, you know, they might still be thinking it's, you know, six months ago right, when, they're, right. when their neighbor did had how many people at an open house or something. I mean, it's just really hard to kind of measure and also influence the consumer mindset here when they're not paying that much attention. That's right. And I I think, you know, one thing I talked about yesterday was this idea of a lock-in effect that, you know, someone who uh, is a homeowner got a 3% rate. And I think from an industry perspective, the thought is that person will never move again because they're going to hold out to that for dear life. And I think that says something about mortgage people, like it's all about the mortgage, but um, you know, what I, try to highlight is, you know, life happens to a lot of people who aren't mortgage people and they get married, they have kids, they get new jobs, other reasons that make you move, even if it may not be the best financial decision, they are going to move. And I think the the more distance we get away from those 3% rates. So I think the farther we get away from those 3% mortgage rates, the easier it's going to be for some people to sort of leave that 3% rate behind because of these life events that really are the reason why many people are moving. I, I think that's so true. The psychology behind it. It's like when you saw it, when you saw it go so low, it's not that five, you know, in the fives or even in the sixes is that high, but it's so high compared to like, Hey, I just got this rate or my neighbor just got this that's rate right. or I missed out on this great rate. Right. I think that's the psychology behind it. So agree with you there, the farther we get away from that. And then um, I know in your presentation, you talked about what you had seen on people are sort of, um, solving for this whole issue by moving, if they are moving to places that are just less expensive. So yeah, they might have, you know, a higher priced home relative to, uh, you know, home prices have gone up in that area and they have a higher mortgage rate. But if they're moving from a higher priced area to a lower price, they're, they're coming out ahead in the end. Yeah. yeah. So this is, uh, give credit to some colleagues at Freddie Mac who put up some really neat research on migration. And it was showing that if you look at within county moves, they're down. And that makes sense, right? Within county, that's essentially a discretionary move. It's it's something that's just a little bit nicer, a little bit different. Those aren't happening as frequently. But moving across county, across state, across the country, that's a job move. That's a family move. There's another reason that's driving that. But to your point, the other thing you totally see is net migration out of the top top 25 metros, uh, net in-migration to less costly areas. And lots of research around this that... You know, initially it's like, okay, is that all about the pandemic and hybrid work? Uh, Or now is some of it truly being driven by differential housing costs, right? And that's a factor in where people decide to live. Absolutely. I also think that, you know, um, in the pandemic, people realized like other people are choosing, you know, it's that whole FOMO thing or like, wow, look at this giant house they got in, you know, Oklahoma or Kansas or the Midwest or somewhere. And I I feel like it just got a lot more exposure. And maybe some of those people went back, but I do think it opened up the possibility where people are like, you know, that that is an option now. Or maybe they didn't think of it as a serious option before, especially if they can work remote. Yeah. And I think more flexibility really across the entire workforce in 
you know, obviously there's implications for that in terms of the commercial real estate market, but I think from a household perspective, it's, it's positive, you know, options have value and they're, they're exercising that. I think the other sort of aspect of the pandemic, and this was pretty clear from the get go, right? This was a positive housing demand shock. People realized that the house is not just where they're sleeping. It's where they're working. It's where they're teaching their kids. It's where they're stuck for long periods of time potentially. (laughs) And so a move to, a larger house, a different house, a different configuration, um, that has a lot of value for people, I think. I think so, too. It's so funny. I was talking to um, one of the attendees yesterday at lunch, and we had just gotten out of your session. We were talking about this, you know, moving to places. He said, you know, um, you, you, there is the overriding narrative, narrative that we see that people are very rate sensitive. At the same time, he's like, my parents literally just went from a low cost area to Seattle. So they, wow. he said they broke all the rules. They went to a higher cost area. They bought a bigger house that was more, you know, like, um, less affordable. He's like, what is going on here? And I think it was funny because of course he's in the business and these are what his parents were doing. But I do think that it just goes to show like there are people every year who buy homes, no matter what the interest right. rate is. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. That being said, maybe the the next part of our our conversation is less optimistic, and that's when we're talking about volume, which obviously our listeners already are feeling very um, acutely. But uh, tell us what your forecast is now for for this year in volume. Yeah. So I'll start with home sales. And I I did make the differentiation between the new and the existing market. We were talking about lock-in. We think existing home sales are going to be down 17 to 18% this year. So pretty significant drop. And that's really constrained by the amount of inventory that's on the market. Latest realtor data, less than three months of supply. You get about a million homes nationwide that are listed. That, that's really, really low. We would expect about six months of supply in a more balanced market. New home side, as I said, builders, I think, have been happily surprised at how uh, they've been able to sell their pipeline of uh, homes that were under construction at the end of last year. And there was concern earlier this year that they would run into troubles and have to provide a lot of incentives to move those properties. When I talk to builders, that's that's just not the case. They're able to, to just sell those properties because there's nothing else for the buyers to get. So we essentially think new home sales are going to be flat to last year. But all in, you know, this is a tough market. So uh, last year, our estimate was about $2.2 trillion in origination volume. We see that fall into 1.8, so about a 20% drop, and that's declines both on the purchase and the refi side. Wow, yeah. I mean, we, we all know it, right? We know that, but it's it's just they're pretty stark numbers. What about uh, servicing income? What, what are we seeing there? So it's been, uh, in terms of profitability, it's been sort of the, the, the real benefit for lenders that uh, for those that have a servicing portfolio, given that servicing values are really quite strong, um, you know, they've been able to reflect that in their all-in income. And so a number I highlighted yesterday was that, you know, while our data in terms of production income losses for this past year or so, that's really been fairly bleak. But you look all in, first quarter of this year, 32% of lenders were, were profitable when you include servicing income. So that's a, a big loss on the production side, but then a, a nice offsetting gain on the servicing side. I think the challenge in the year ahead is if we're right and the job market is likely to weaken from here, typically when the unemployment rate increases, delinquencies do as well. Higher delinquencies mean higher servicing costs, and that erodes some of that profitability of the servicing business. 
No, that's a great point. And I mean, that is the downside. So we know that the um, the Fed wants to see more job losses before maybe they pivot. That's what we've been talking about. But if you're in the mortgage industry, you really don't want people to lose their jobs and have to you know, go into foreclosure or do loss mit for that, even though I feel like um, now everybody's skills are really sharp on that. <laughs> is, you know, and, and so I think we'd be prepared. We obviously don't see a huge um, crash or a huge increase in foreclosures anyway. No, no. And then, as you said, I think the industry yeah. and the policy community have developed an increasingly large set of tools to help borrowers who are in distress. And so borrowers will get, you know, every opportunity to try to stay in that property. If they have to leave, there's uh, sort of graceful ways of, of exiting from the property. And um, certainly at this point, you know, given how much home prices have increased, if they bought a few years ago, I think some of the servicer conversations will be along the lines of, look, if you sell now, you're going to walk away with equity. Right. Um, and, and that's probably going to be a better outcome for you than going through the end of a long process. I do think this is just, you know, um, maybe people who aren't familiar with housing so much but want to talk about like there's a crash coming. There's just no uh, correlation when you think about 2008 and you think about the fact that like, okay, you're going to you're selling your house into an environment where, you know, we have too much inventory where there's like two, you know, two houses on your block that are boarded up that have been vacant. I mean, it's completely different. It's like, if you put your house on the market today, you might have a line depending on where you are of 25 people. That's right. In. So it, it, even if there are foreclosures it, or even if there are people who get into trouble, it may not lead to a foreclosure much, right. much less than in the past. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about is we talked about, um, the volume, but there's also capacity, right? There's uh, productivity per originator, um, per employee at originators. Talk a little bit about what you found there. Yeah, a chart I showed yesterday was looking at loans closed per month per production employee. And going back the past decade or so, that's been about 1.8 on average. Uh, during a refi boom, a lot of more units going through that factory at a lender. Um, particularly in 20 and 21, um, that got as high as 3.1. So phenomenally productive during the pandemic. We're now at 1.0, which is the, the lowest we've ever seen. And I know it's maddening to a, a lot of lenders, right? Because they've had round after round of layoff and they've tried to cut expenses wherever they could, but volume dropped faster than they were able to adjust the capacity of their organization. So that, that's, I think, what those productivity numbers are reflecting. That's so rough. And, you know, you get to a point where it's like, at at what point can you still, can you not manufacture the loan, right? If you think of it as an assembly line, a real manufacturing line, you pull out key people and it, it just doesn't work the same. It's not, you know, maybe you don't have excess anymore. How do you get to the next level? Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's always so much talk around making the organization scalable. And often that's thought about on the upside of, you know, can I, if volume were to increase, do I have to hire or can I sort of push more through uh, given the resources I have, but it happens on the downside too. But what we're seeing now is, you know, volume has dropped so low that in some cases, you know, there, there, it's become a fixed cost as opposed to a variable cost in sort of certain positions that if you're going to stay as an independent business, you have to have people in those spots. You can't cut anymore because there's only one of them, for example. I've actually had these conversations with a number of lenders. And so then the conversation will go to, to M&A or you know, other uh, forms to try to get to a scale that, that makes sense so that the expense base is going to uh, be able to be maintained even at this level of volume. 
So, you know, when we think about um, the cost to originate, you know, we know that has just has kept going up, up, and up. Is most of that because there's just less volume, so there, you know, that the manufacturing process falls on less loans, or is it really the process itself is that much more expensive? It's it's both. I, um, uh, within the past year, it's it's uh, largely reflecting just the decline in the denominator, the number of units. But over the course of the past decade, that cost has gone up. Sometimes you can sort of directly point to events where. You know, a new implementation of TRID or uh, you know, QM or some of the other really important regulations that have impacted the industry, you can see costs jump uh, related to that. There have been other times where it's tougher to sort of nail down what continues to drive those costs up. But the, our cost measure, it's really comprehensive. It takes into account sales costs, so what the LO is getting. That tends to go up with the size of the loan. Right, because it's basis points on the uh, the size of, of the, the loan that's being originated. So when home prices go up, loan size goes up, and so the, the sales cost is increasing as well. But the other components, the back office, the corporate, uh, and the production support components, they're not as directly tied to that. So that's more just that this business is more complicated than it used to be, and a lot of that reflected in the compliance and regulatory requirements. That is, that's a great explanation because I do think, you know, it can, it can be from the outside, like, what is going on here? You know, I mean, we know that that denominator does make, you know, spread out of, uh, among more loans. Oh, the cost to originate goes down, but that's a great explanation. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, MBS Outlook, right? I know you got that question yesterday during your session. Um, we're at the secondary conference. It's, it's on everybody's uh, uh, mind. So tell us, tell us about your outlook there. So... Uh, you know, one thing that we really focused on in, in the presentation that we had another session today was, okay, we're not in a world where Fannie and Freddie are regular buyers in large scale of mortgage-backed securities anymore. The Fed's now allowing their portfolio to run off as well. And banks, particularly in the wake of Silicon Valley and Signature, um, they're going to be much less active, at least for a time. And so then you sort of left wondering, okay, well, who is going to be that next buyer? And the session we just had today was, you know, thinking more about, okay, are mortgage REITs going to play a larger role? And there's certainly a potential. At these kind of times when spreads are as wide as they are, that's a sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a lot of these REITs. And then other asset managers, you know, the, the, all the names you know on the, the, the big investment side. In many ways, they're just they're in the market all the time now, passively investing in mortgage-backed securities because it's such a big component of the overall bond market. So I don't know that we got answers, but it's, it's a fascinating conversation. And I would just say, you know, over this next period of time, you know, market dynamics uh, for MBS just are, are going to be different than what we had the last 10 years where you had the Fed in there as a constant buyer. That's just, that's just a, the nature of the market today. Mike, I appreciate you giving us all these insights and bringing us the data that you guys have. I would love to do this again at annual and see where we are six months from now. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. And that is a wrap for today's episode. Before we break, I want to bring awareness to three things happening at HW Media that I care a lot about. These are things that we're investing a lot of time and resources into, and I think you should be aware of them because they will help you and your business. The first thing I want to raise some awareness to are our two HW Media events. First is the Gathering of Eagles. 
The Gathering of Eagles has been hosted by Real Trends and put on for over 30 years at this point. This year, we're bringing the event to Austin, Texas, June 18th through 21st at the Omni Barton Creek Resort. This is HW's real estate brokerage and sales focused event, but it brings together executives from across the housing ecosystem to forge opportunities and develop ways to work together to better serve home buyers and sellers, both in their brokerage needs, as well as their financing, insurance, and other core services needs. Incredible event. I hope you'll check it out on Real Trends or on Housing Wire. Two, Housing Wire Annual. Housing Wire Annual this year is October 10th through 12th, also in Austin, Texas, at the Hyatt Lost Pines Resort. This is our event to bring together the entire housing community to talk about what's happening in mortgage. This is not the place to whine and talk about your problems. This is the place for winners to gain more market share and develop strategies that help them build their businesses faster than any benchmark that they or their peers can set. Join us at Housing Wire Annual to set forward the strategies, partnerships, and uncover the opportunities to help you grow your mortgage and real estate business faster than you ever imagined. And finally, the last thing I want to bring awareness to you is actually a podcast that we air in this feed, the housing news feed. The Modern Mortgage Origination Masterclass is a four-part series that we launched each week in May. This series is presented by Zillow Home Loans and talks a lot about the modern home buying experience, what the modern home buyer wants, the way lenders and agents can partner together to develop more business and serve their home buyers and sellers in the best way possible. Please check out the Modern Mortgage Masterclass brought to you by Zillow Home Loans. And that's it. That's a wrap for today. Check out Housing Wire Annual. Check out Gathering of Eagles. Check out the Modern Mortgage Origination Masterclass. These are resources and opportunities that will serve you well. Have a great day.